1: Hello, I'm your host Alan Cowley and this week I'm excited to be speaking with Ronan Percival. Ronan is the CEO and founder of Forest, a business which has over 5,000 spas and salons as customers throughout Ireland, the UK, Finland, Germany, Australia and the US. Ronan and his co-founder have built the business over the last 15 years, becoming a global software provider that's focused on helping spas and salons grow. Now, Ronan, Forest isn't your first entrepreneur venture. So before we go on to hearing all about Forest, let's start with what led you to start your own business?
0: So I've always been trying to start companies since I was a really young age. You know, even I started things when I was in primary school and secondary school. And, but it was really in university where I met a couple of sort of like-minded people. One guy was called Dylan Collins, another guy called Sean Blanchfield. And we started two businesses in college. One of them was a text message company so this would have been back in around 2000 when text messages first started and we collected a load of phone numbers from students in trinity college where we were and basically allowed pubs and nightclubs around trinity to advertise drink promotions and things like that to those people and it worked really well and we made a few quid from it and that kind of gave us a bit of confidence to try something a bit bigger and Sean was doing a PhD at the time in distributed systems, basically sort of peer-to-peer networking. Things like Skype were based off that technology, and Kazaa and some of the music download sites back then were based off that technology. And we decided to apply it to computer games, so to allow computer games to be played online on a peer-to-peer basis. So I don't know if I'm getting too technical here, but basically... No, no, no it, go for it. Traditionally, computer games, and they still are actually now, but they would have been played through servers. So, you know, if you wanted to play online on your desktop PC or would be on your Xbox now, whatever, you're connecting to a server which is hosting the game. Or people playing Fortnite, that's being hosted somewhere, right, on a server. And so our idea was that those costs were massive at the time and they were kind of impeding the growth of online gaming. So our idea was to allow the computers themselves to host the game so that you wouldn't need servers and that would dramatically reduce the cost of providing a game online. So that was the idea. And so we started a company called Demonware back in 2002. And when we left college, we raised a seed round of about 700,000, which at the time was like really almost unheard of. Not many tech companies raising seed rounds with a bunch of 23-year-olds became a lot more common 10 years later. It turned out that idea didn't really work because computers weren't powerful enough and the network wasn't powerful enough to be able to allow computer games to be hosted that way. But it led to another idea which took off and Demonware eventually was acquired by Activision in 2007 for about 20 million.
1: So are computers able to cope with the peer-to-peer now?
0: Well, what's happened is the technology's just changed. So servers and you know hosting games like that the cost of that has just dramatically fallen so with the rise of things like amazon aws you know azure and all these kind of things the cost of computing power and hosting server it's minuscule you know on a per unit basis compared to what it would have been then and also the network is much stronger so you don't actually need to do it you know it's fairly cheap i mean i'm not saying it's cheap if you're the guys that are running fortnite and you've got like two million concurrently playing. Obviously, the costs are significant on that. But, you know, technology kind of changed. It didn't matter. But what we did develop at the time, and I'd say the guys really developed rather than me, because I'd left at this stage, but they developed a matchmaking service, which is basically what computer games use to, you know, when connect in, when people all load into a, you know, you log on to a computer to game. Find got someone to, be, to play, basically. Yeah, exactly. Find somebody to play and be put in a game. And that matchmaking service, That demonware created is still used today well a new version of it obviously is used today in call of duty and some massive games so the technology is still alive even though the company was acquired many years ago
1: okay so you were only there for about a year or so weren't you
0: yeah it was a couple of years before like we were working together for a few years before that and then i was there for a year of demonware and then i decided to leave and like the reasons i left are kind of the reasons of, you know, my philosophy around building a company and stuff like that. Okay. So I guess what was really interesting, obviously at such a young age, to be involved in fundraising and seeing the dynamics of that and what it meant. But I didn't feel fully comfortable with it. So I guess the big thing that happened was we raised that money and then the next day it was kind of like, right, what are we going to spend this money on to raise more money in a year's time? As opposed to right we've raised money let's go and build a business and that's the dynamics does that make sense
1: yeah no it does so around fundraising your view is that fundraising is more just to meet your next fund so i you know a stepping stone to growth rather than oh, maybe i've not worded that very well
0: yeah i'm not saying that that's definitely the case obviously it's been about 15 16 years since then and you know my understanding experience of building businesses is much bigger than it was then there's different things there's different horses for courses let's say but generally speaking yeah you raise fundraising in theory to build a business but what i found was that on the venture capital trail anyway it's you raise money you know to put yourself in a position to raise more money to put yourself in a position to raise more money to raise more money to then get an exit yeah and the dynamics of venture capital lead to that and i'm not saying every company goes through that obviously some Massive and hugely successful companies go through that and they end up as powerhouses and everything like that. But there's an awful lot of good businesses, I would think, that go through that chain of events and end up getting acquired and disappearing before they can become a really, you know, great long-term business. And that affected me. I just didn't like it. You know, I knew we were working on something exciting and everything like that, but that wasn't the kind of business I wanted to build. I've always kind of thought about building something for the long term something like for 30, 40 years, or maybe, you know, 100 years, that was always my idea. And so I knew that wasn't going to happen in those circumstances. So I left Demonware to start Forest under that kind of idea that, you know, we weren't going to build that kind of company. And as a result, we didn't raise any funds then for seven years, because my understanding at the time anyway, was that I would need to be bootstrapped to be able to make decisions for the business first, as opposed to for the investors first
1: all right so before we go on to bootstrapping and also later on fundraising can you just give us an intro to what forest is when i first heard it i didn't suspect what you did basically from the name.
0: yeah so forest is a software platform for salons so basically it lets hair and beauty salons run their business does their appointment booking scheduling you know runs all the back end like the stock control running reports for staff and then in particular, the kind of USP of like why people would buy Forest because you know there's a lot of companies that provide those tools to salons, but our real USP is the marketing tools on top. So we've developed a suite of very powerful marketing tools, really specifically for salons and for salon customers. So things like we give all our customers their own branded app in the app store, you know they can give their own clients that Uber experience of booking in. We give all our clients' online reputation management. So that would be where we collect reviews from all the clients and then those reviews, the good ones are pushed out to Facebook and Google to make sure that if they're a good salon, that they appear high on SEO or in search rankings and therefore they can grow their business. And then a bunch of other tools, we give them a sort of really beautiful email marketing suite. So something like MailChimp, except it's just specifically for the salons, the templates are all ones that are around the type of treatments or services that they do. Um, and that's all packaged for them. So it's really easy for them to get, you know, something really nice out to their customers and then text messaging tools and on and on like that.
1: Okay. A question that's burning is why salons and spas?
0: So it's a long story. How much time do I have?
1: Can you do it in a minute or so? <laughs> or...
0: Yeah, I'll give you the minute version. <laughs> so the first thing that far started was that we wanted to tackle the no-show problem for small businesses. So small business that took appointments, so that could be a dentist, doctor, salon, et cetera people not turning up for appointments. And we wanted to send out text message appointment reminders to help cut down on those. And so we built a simple appointment software with text message reminders in it, which doesn't sound that you know, groundbreaking now, but at the time, text messaging was only a year or two old, so no business has sent reminders at that time. And then we rolled that out. We ended up getting about 20 customers over six to nine months. You know, we had a dentist, we had a doctor, we had a cherry picking company, we had a restaurant, with a salon. But we weren't getting traction in any of those sectors. We were too broad, it was too horizontal. We didn't have enough features in each one, like d- dentists wanted other features, different ones to salons, et cetera. And so we realized that we needed to go deep in one of these sectors. So I ended up working in a salon for nearly a year as a receptionist, and had to try out one of these industries and to see which one you know might have potential to really develop something more specific. The idea was i was going to work in a dentist but i couldn't get a job in a dentist surgery and i ended up getting the job in the salon and i thought i would just do that at first but i ended up loving it and really seeing the opportunity and how big the salon industry is i mean it is absolutely massive and it's bigger than all those other industries like that's something that people don't really realize i mean you're looking at 60 million people working in salons as hairdressers or beauty therapists worldwide on top of that, you're looking at another 40, 50 million people who work in businesses providing services or products into those salons. So I think, you know, if you're working in a L'Oreal factory producing color that's only available in salons to working in the forest. So it's, you know, over 100 million people work in the industry. It's absolutely huge. and I think it's the seventh largest employer worldwide. So it's a huge industry in its own right. You know, but it's just not apparent because it's such a cottage industry. You know, 95% of those salons are owner-operated. So it doesn't have the same presence on the high street or in people's consciousness about it being a huge industry. And so that's great as well because that means it's a massive opportunity. So that's kind of some of the things that we kind of found by going to work in the salon.
1: I'm staggered by the lengths of market research you went to a year working in a salon to really understand it is I've never heard that before that's absolutely brilliant and you obviously know the ins and outs of your industry so well now because of that year I'm presuming.
0: Yeah yeah I mean like there's more to it than that I mean we were broke as well so I needed money so I needed a job so I could have gone and worked in a chipper or something but you know and done this in the evening but I decided to work in the salon as well so kind of hitting two birds with the one stone yeah exactly so that was part of it as well but I would recommend that like having done that it was like wow like it opens up everything about how the salon works about how hairdressers think you know what's cool about the industry you know you need to love an industry as well if you're going to spend your life in it and you know I fell in love with the industry as well there's some really nice aspects to it that aren't in other industries you know people love coming into a salon like when you're standing at the front desk people come in with such a nice attitude because they're looking forward to coming in and then they go off and they spend a couple of hours having their hair done or having a beauty treatment or whatever and they leave feeling even better about themselves than they did when they came in and that creates this really nice atmosphere that's very hard to describe to someone if you haven't worked in it but it's kind of infectious and you once you've done it you're like wow i love this it's hard to go into another type of business after it So there's things like that that you discover and that kind of gives you the fuel, I suppose, to spend your life in an industry.
1: That's really cool. All right. So you've spent a year in a salon to understand that and also get paid. Let's talk about bootstrapping and kind of eventually fundraising. So what do you think are the pros and cons of bootstrapping? Particularly, you know, you did it for 10 years or so.
0: Yeah. So the big thing is it's really slow. And we would have undoubtedly gone much faster if we'd raised money because every cent counts. You're constantly, you know, only taking an opportunity if you can afford to. So you're saying no to lots of things that possibly would have been a good idea or you're not expanding fast when you're hitting a vein of opportunity. So that's the big downside. The big positive is almost the same thing, but, you know, in reverse, that because you could only do certain things and you're so limited to what you can try, you really think them through and you don't just sort of throw mud on the wall, if that makes sense. You really want to be sure when you're spending money that it's going to work. And as a result, you probably do say no to a lot of stuff that would have been distracting. So that's a kind of benefit. The other thing was we had to build a business that was self-sustaining. So it meant that we we're constantly in control of our destiny. So we never had to go, right, we're going to have to raise money now And then you raise it from somebody that maybe isn't aligned with your values or has different expectations of what you're going to do with your business, which happens all the time when companies are funded. From what I can see anyway, I'm not sure whether you agree with that or have seen that yourself. And when those expectations aren't aligned with the investors and the founders, that just leads to bad outcomes a lot of the time. You know, sometimes the business is good and it's got a good future and, you know, it has to get sold because everyone's kind of fallen out in the shareholders you know, between different people. And that's just a real shame, you know, and see that happen too much, I think. Not all the time, obviously, but it happens too much. So things like that. So it created a culture internally in Forest that was incredibly cost-driven. You know, everybody just minded the sense. I didn't have to worry about anyone in the organization spending money when they shouldn't have because everyone was, you know, basically as tight as you can imagine. And that was a kind of culture. And that's an amazing thing to build an organization on top of to have that trust between everyone that everyone's going to look out for what the company's spending money on. And also when we did finally raise money, we got to choose who we raised money from and make sure that we chose some people that were aligned with us and we could take our time, you know, because we were profitable, not massively profitable, but because we weren't losing money, we were never pressurized into raising money from the wrong sort of folks. And that has led to a really good position now, I think, in the company. Granted, it's taken us 15 years to get here, But it's a good position where, you know, the investors we do have, for a start, they don't own the majority of the business. So we still have majority control and they don't have any strange kind of terms in the agreement that would force us to sell their shares or anything. They're kind of, they're in it for the long haul as well. And the way their money is structured is that it's basically family money that can go on for as long as we want to as well. And they're under no pressure to get a five-year return or a seven-year return. So it's worked out very well in the end. How much have you raised now? So we've done in total, we did a seed round back in 2011 for a million euros when we were seven years old as a business. And that seed round did us all the way to last year. We did a 20 million round last year, a lot of which actually was used to give those investors from 2011 a return if they wanted to leave or, you know, some of them wanted to stay on for the journey as well. So it allowed us to do that and then have some money put into the business too.
1: Okay. You touched on a company culture of kind of cost-driven, but also trust. So you've got over 120 employees now.
0: We're 200 actually.
1: Oh, over 200. Oh, sorry. What process do you use for hiring and firing and keeping that culture then?
0: I guess we have a set of values that we identified really early. So I just by luck would have it, I read a book called Good to Great, which is quite well known, but I read it really early in "Forest Journey and that's all about building culture and having set of values and building your team around that. So we kind of set about those values that we created in 2006 are still the values today and they're just sort of pervasive throughout the organization you know everybody from the when they're being hired we have tests that we've kind of built to allow people who are hiring to understand whether someone has those values or not or at least to give them a really good pointer whether they have those values or not and then you know in terms of when they join you know within six months you know if they don't have those values at the six month review then you know it's set up that those people don't continue in the organization i mean it doesn't happen that often because we're quite good at identifying that people do have them at the beginning so there's things like that which just mean it's like a gatekeeper just to allow that only the right sort of people are joining forest and when i say right sort of people i don't mean right generally i just mean right for this organization i mean there's plenty of probably amazing people that mightn't get in here but they'd be brilliant somewhere else in a different culture So our hiring processes are very developed, I think, for a company of our size. And then also in terms of employee development, we think a lot about giving people opportunities to develop their skills, develop their career. We know people have the right values, so there's a lot of movement between different departments in here Uh, for opportunities. You know, just because you're in customer support or in marketing doesn't mean you can't end up somewhere else if you have the right values. And somewhere else, maybe better suited to your skills or where you want to go. So, there's lots of that. As a result, we have a very low staff turnover and one of the highest ratings in the UK of Ireland of any company on Glassdoor, which is where you know, employees rate their company and what it's like to work for them. But we have a 4.8 score.
1: There's a lot of focus um, from you and your top level team to do that. So, over the years, over the last 15 years, if you haven't taken investment, what sort of advisors, mentors, have you had to kind of help you along the journey?
0: I didn't really have many mentors, to be honest, up until about 2011. In 2011, we got some great angels. It was mainly a syndicate of angels that we got on board, and there were some great angels in there. There was a fund as well, which is really helpful, a seed fund by Enterprise Equity. But a couple of key angels became members of our board. One of them was a guy called Pat Garvey, and he was a sort of serial entrepreneur and built a big company in the 80s and 90s called Sharp Text, which was sold for like 400 million in 2000. And he'd been like the chairman of the Tote and all sorts of companies. So huge experience. And so he became chairman and he's still chairman today. And I work really closely with him and he's been a great sounding board and mentor for building the business. Prior to that, I didn't have that. And I basically just read books, you know, so things like good to great, or there wasn't that much blogging then, but you know, some blogs and stuff like that I would have followed. So reading really business books really beforehand, but it does make a big difference having someone like that on board. You can see the company's growth just starts to take off after about 12 months of those guys coming in. It went to a whole new level because our decision making got better and you know, we had access to more advice.
1: I'm presuming you don't regret this,
0: but do you think that you maybe should have got some advisors earlier on then? I don't think so because I think there was a lot of benefits from being bootstrapped. So we got the benefits of being bootstrapped and then we got the benefits of bringing on funding. You know, we kind of got the best of both worlds. You know, the company today is thriving. Like it's doing brilliant, you know, and I'm loving what I do and the team here is loving what they do. So I think that doesn't happen to everyone. So, you know, we're lucky and feel privileged to be in this position and we're in this position because of having been bootstrapped and then also having had the advice as well. So if we'd had the funding earlier, we may have just crashed and burned, who knows. You know what I mean? So I don't regret it.
1: No, no, that's no, fair enough. There's a company we interviewed a couple of years ago that purposely didn't want to take too much funding because of kind of the similar sort of reasons that you're saying and to actually bootstrap themselves and stuff like that. And they're like you, are, are a success as well. What are the biggest challenges do you think that you've faced along the journey?
0: So i mean, in thousands of challenges. The big ones are kind of when you're starting out, you don't know what you're doing. Not that you know what I'm doing now either because it's new now. But I didn't really have an idea of where we were going. I'd have a much clearer idea of where we're going now, if that makes sense. Yeah. So we were just kind of trying it and seeing what happened in those days. So I think getting that direction has really helps a lot. Like if you're very clear of where you're going, you tell that to other people. And it's much easier for them to follow you if you're clear about where you're going. And so that's something when I meet a lot of people starting startups now, you know, they're similar to where I was then is that they're not really sure where they're going with it. They just kind of want to be doing a business and they're sort of raising money or whatever because they think that's what they need to do. So I always encourage them to just take time to think about where they want to go with it. Because if you do want to say to have a business that's going to last a long time, just going to raise money early on will actually mean that you won't be able to do that necessarily. It's going to be a lot harder unless you have some massive idea. You know, so people are kind of clear what they want to do. Do they want a business that's going to last a long time or that they can do for 20 years? You know, that maybe they need to take a bit slower at the start. And other challenges were around people, like obviously hiring good staff. That's a never-ending problem. and It gets harder if the economy is going well. So they are huge challenges. We had never raised money. So how did we attract good people into Forest? Because no one knew who we were and uh, we didn't have a profile or anything. So... That was a big challenge. Then hanging on to people when they're with you, you know, when the economy went bad in two thousand and seven, because we were bootstrap, we didn't have really any money in the bank or anything. So that was huge kicking the teeth to have to deal with. So yeah, there's been you know loads of challenges between having money and people. I suppose probably being the the main challenge.
1: It usually is. So in terms of the strains that it's been, you know, it's been a long journey. Although you wanted it to be a long journey. Were those strains on you as a founder and your co-founder? Did you ever envision the sacrifices that it took to kind of grow a business to this size?
0: Yeah, I think I was aware of the sacrifices and prepared to do them. My dad had his own business and it was only himself working in it. He had a sort of food delivery business in the West of Ireland growing up. So I'd seen him working 90 hour weeks, you know, all through my teens and before then. And I'd be helping them out in the summers, you know, load the van and go out and deliveries with them and stuff like that. So I knew what it took to have your own business inherently because I'd seen it in front of me from a very young age. One thing I've noticed is that a lot of entrepreneurs that are successful in tech often come from families that have had small businesses. So they kind of know the hard work and the sacrifices. They kind of inherently know them. That's one thing I kind of noticed actually over the last 10 years when I look at people who've kind of made it. So yeah, you need to be prepared for that sacrifice. But if it's part of your upbringing, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. It just feels like something you're going to do anyway, you know? So that was where I was at with it. That does take a toll if you do it for more than about 10 or 15 years. So I was lucky in that I started a business in my early to mid-20s. So, you know, I didn't have a family or a responsibility. So I could do 10, you know, real hard years of 90-hour weeks. But you can't do it forever. And I don't do it anymore. You know, I work nine to five now. And, you know, I have a family and they're a priority for me. And so I want to be able to do that. But luckily, I've done the 10 years. So the forest is at a point. It doesn't need me doing 90 hour weeks anymore to survive. It's a thriving business in its own right. But, um, yeah, obviously building a business requires massive sacrifice at the beginning for sure.
1: That's some great advice for entrepreneurs that are just starting out their journey. Okay, so... Rodan, let's talk a little bit about what the future looks like then. You've been with Forest for 15 years now. And although you always had a long game in mind, what does the next 15 years look like?
0: It's a really, really good question because, you know, I always thought long term all the time. But then you get to a point where you've done the hard slog and the business is going well. And you do think, you know, maybe this is time to go and do something else or take it easy for a while. But I don't feel like that at all. I feel more motivated and more excited about forest than I ever have. And actually the potential of the business seems bigger to me now than before. So a couple of things, reason to explain that. So one, I think the salon industry is absolutely huge. And I didn't understand that before, how big it was. And when I was giving you numbers earlier, like they're numbers I've really come to understand in the last couple of years. So that's one thing, so it's this huge industry It's really unpenetrated with technology. It's a cottage industry and the people working in salons don't have access to the kind of tools or systems that, you know, large corporates would have had access to for 20 years. And so we want to be able to give them those tools. And if we can enable salons to have access to the same tools that the big guys have, they're going to be able to have much stronger businesses as well. So that's one thing I'm very excited about doing. And I think that's going to take place in the form of a platform. So that, you know, they use our software to run their business and do marketing, but then they have access to apps that cover anything in a salon. So from HR things to selling more retail, you know, whatever it is that helps them run their business better. And so I'm really excited about doing that. And I think we need to get to maybe 10 to 15,000 salons, which we will do over the next two or three years to like have enough salons that you have critical mass to encourage people to build those applications for salons. We're starting to see that happening bit by bit already, even at the 6,000 salon level that we're at right now. So, yeah, I'm really excited about doing that and building a platform. In Ireland, there hasn't been many companies that have built a platform, like a proper platform. And so, you know, I I can't really think of any actually off the top of my head, maybe Hostel World with Hostels, a public company in the UK that started here in Dublin. You know, there's not many. And if you can build a platform business, that's a business that will last for decades and decades. And... You know, that excites me to kind of try and build that out of Ireland. It hasn't been done. I think if you look at other industries, you know, the big guys like Kerry Group or Ryanair or CRH, you know, you're looking at companies that have come from Ireland that have really become dominant international players in their own area. You know, it's a once a decade that it happens, really. And, um, you know, so we'd like to give that a go. Even if we don't get there, we'll give it a really good go trying. You've
1: got some serious drive, determination and passion. And, you know, as we saw from having worked in a salon and deciding to do that over any other job, you're dedicated, hugely dedicated to the business. And it's something that entrepreneurs that hopefully are listening to this will take on board and really understand the sacrifice that it takes to succeed. And the patience as well. So Ronan, it's been absolutely brilliant to have you on. So thank you very much for chatting to us today.
0: Great. It was my pleasure, Alan. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Invested
1: Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, to get the most up to date, interesting, and insightful content from the invested investor. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.